Welcome, dear listeners, to the grand final of Scientific Imagination and A Sign in Space podcast series. It has been an incredible journey of scientific inquiry and human curiosity displayed in a worldwide performance. In this final episode, we will bring you a culmination of what we have explored together with the members of the team of Assigning Space, a symphony of voices, perspectives and insights from those who have played pivotal roles in this extraordinary adventure. So, over the past episodes, we've ventured into the heart of the performance composed and directed by Daniela de Paulis. A signal from space, a message from the unknown. From the very beginning, we focused on the meaning of the message in the broadest sense of the word, not only deciphering its intent, but to understand the profound implications it may hold for our species and our place in the universe. Today, the final word comes from the individuals tirelessly deciphering the signal's cryptic patterns on Discord, to the brilliant minds who compose this message, and members of the advisory panel and outreach, and outreach team. Because of the magnitude of this project, we weren't able to invite all the contributors. Keep in mind that there are over 70 people and multiple research institutions involved. So, as you listen to this episode, you will hear the voices of those who have devoted themselves to this quest, sharing their stories and their insights, from astrophysicists to linguists and data analysts. Together we've explored the profound questions that have arisen throughout this journey. Questions such as, what do you find important about the project? And how might the discovery of extraterrestrial life or communication affect our understanding of humanity's place in the universe? What impact might an extraterrestrial communication have on society and culture? And what is the role of imagination in this project? I dare to say that the role of imagination in this project is tremendous. It's its base. It's a fantastic grand thought experiment where what we learn is maybe not exclusively encoded in a message, but can be found also by listening to what people have to say, taking into consideration new perspectives, insights, and thus broaden your knowledge. In this episode, you will have the opportunity to hear from our esteemed guests featured in the previous podcast episodes. They will take a moment to introduce themselves and then we will delve into the valuable insights and perspectives they've shared regarding the project. For a better and clearer understanding of this podcast episode, I highly recommend to listen to the other episodes that can be found at scientificimagination.org or visit assignin.space. I want to thank Daniela for asking me to make this project. It has been a fantastic endeavor. And I want to thank all of my guests for their generosity of taking the time and sharing their thoughts on this wonderful project by Daniela. My name is Sabine Winters and thank you for listening. My name is Daniela De Paulis. I'm an artist and I work across disciplines and my latest project is called A Sign in Space, which is the result of approximately 15 years of work with radio technologies and live performance art. And in this project, I bring together people from my international networks that I've been nourishing, growing for the past 15 years. I really managed to bring together my friends, my colleagues from all these various networks. And this is how this project was made possible. So it's quite an ambitious project in terms of both use of technology and uh, logistics and it would have been impossible to do just on my own or without the really dedicated help of so many people. Assigning space is really my brainchild as, as, as they say so I initiated but also it's very much a vision that I wanted to create, to take from the academia, from science fiction books, from science fiction films into reality. So assigning space is an actual reenactment of what would happen if we were to receive an extraterrestrial signal and possibly an extraterrestrial message. 
what would happen? How would we make sense of it? So for me, this was the crucial question. How would we attribute any meaning to a message coming from an extraterrestrial civilization? So I think this is for me the crucial philosophical and artistic question. As we are a very complex society nowadays, especially also because and thanks to social media, we are able to generate more and more opinions and exchange opinions also across cultures. My question is, how would we, using this kind of technologies, create meaning around this message? So is it possible to come to a final, a definitive meaning? I think it won't be possible, especially if this message is truly extraterrestrial. I think the interpretation will always be open-ended and will always reflect our cultural, intellectual limitations, and probably it will be impossible to really interpret correctly, interpret what another civilization is trying to, to communicate. So for me, the main question is how do we make sense of this type of completely alien content so for me this was the main the most fascinating potential of the project but of course there will be a lot of spin-off questioning we also address these questions of how a potential discovery of extraterrestrial life and intelligence would change our view on spiritual matters for example or religion or spatial understandings, or the ethical impact, for example, of such a discovery on our life and culture, etc. Because it is very much about how we make, how we create meaning as a society, as a human society, plural. So it's probably connected to traditions of, I don't know, philosophy of language, and just the philosophy of how we make meaning. So anything, literally anything, can be interpreted in an infinite number of possibilities. And I guess this type of reasoning also is what you would have if you were looking at an abstract painting. So if you're looking at an abstract painting like Pollock or whatever abstract painter you can imagine, we would have an endless number of interpretations, as many as people watching, in fact. I think uh, this is a good example. I think abstract art is really what highlights the best this ability and probably limitation of humans to come, to come up with an endless number of interpretations. And at the same time, this potential we have also is somehow crucial to our social, to our misunderstanding in society. So we understand and misunderstand each other continuously. And I was really interested in exploring this possibility, especially once you can use, for example, social media and other networks that can allow for this communication. And I thought, what is the most extreme kind of situation we can create? For, for highlighting this process of knowledge making and probably having a signal coming from an extraterrestrial intelligence is really the most radical way to highlight these really incredibly diverse and arbitrary ways for humans to make meaning of something. Arbitrary because it is always, there is always an element of subjectivity and that subjectivity is, of course, tied to our life experiences. So my life experience will be very different even from someone who lived, grew up in the same street as, as me <laughs> or so the, 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 Unique experiences we have throughout life also are fundamental to the way we judge, we create meaning, we interpret something. And in that sense, it would be arbitrary because there is always that component of bias. So fully objective interpretation, especially when you talk about cultural interpretation, not necessarily scientific interpretation 
although I, I suspect there might be a strong bias there as well, the way you look at the data, how you decide to process the data, how you decide to clean the data, for example, that is already heavily biased by our culture, the methodologies we developed throughout centuries, by the instruments we use, etc. But especially when it comes to cultural interpretation, even more so because there is e even more an element of subjectivity involved, then at that point, it's really quite hard to have exactly the same interpretation from a group of people or even just two people. My name is Gonzalo Carracedo. I also go by the nickname of Batstreet since I was a teenager. <laughs> I'm a PhD student in astrophysics. Uh, I'm doing my research on the Center for Astrobiology here in Madrid, dependent on the Spanish National Research Council. And in the past, I used to work in the cybersecurity sector as an ethical hacker. So yeah, to have this background on computer, software, computer engineering, software engineering, and also science. So I got interested in it because, well, I have to say, I'm a huge fan of this movie from 1997 called Contact. So for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to play Dr. Arroway here. <laughs> So for me, it was pretty much like that. And not only that, so, I mean, I don't like self-promotion too much, but I am a the developer of a signal analysis software called SigDigger, and many of its features and also the graphical interface itself is inspired in, in scenes and, and frames of the movie contact itself. So for me, it was like living the dream, living the movie with an existing signal, like, Hey, let's try to figure out the measure, the Doppler shift, and and look for something. So perhaps I was more helpful in the earlier stages of the of this project, maybe because of my technical background. Because in in the beginning, the only thing we we had were these audio recordings from different radio astronomical, but radio astronomical observatories around the world, especially Greenland, but also the ATA. And well, in here in Spain, people from Yedes as well. So let's say that uh, in that case, uh, there were like lots of people that had maybe little knowledge on how these things work. So they were like, you know, try to open the file with existing software. And of course, that didn't work because that's, I mean, those files are not supposed to be treated like that. Like I just happen to love analyzing radio signals and, and, you know, figure out what's hiding behind them. So let's say that I had some background that. So I was more like, try this, open it with this thing. Let's try to understand first what this means. And when I saw people that was, you know, feeling stuck, I was like, let's, you know, put all my energies in this. And so I started to demodulate everything. And then later other people joining like Hail, Hail Storm in, in Discord, which uh, helped us a lot. And with patience and and the help of other people, of course, we managed to, you know, arrive to the actual message. But it was maybe most of my role there was helping out with the extraction of the true message. For me, what I still like the most is, again, the idea of intersubjectivity. I mean, you know, even though I have this background in cybersecurity and right now this in astrophysics, these things are always connected to science and technology. And I have a set of conceptual tools and expertise and things that are highly tied to the kind of work I do and the kind of co-workers I, I work with. But this is completely different. We have a disparate channel with lots of people with lots of different backgrounds, with lots of different personal stories that also want to participate in this, in this kind of global phenomenon that is assigned in space. And in some cases, you have to make an extra effort that I believe is the most interesting and rewarding part of it. Like, how do you communicate your ideas or try to convince someone else or try to understand what's the other one trying to tell you from a very, you know, different background? And how do you connect 
ideas or those thoughts with with yours. So doing this extra effort and trying to, you know, walk in someone else's shoes. For me, it's the most interesting thing. And, you know, seeing the world with different glasses in, in the end. And of course, learning that when there's something that someone is proposing and maybe in a first glimpse doesn't make too much sense to you. Like try to go beyond that. Why do you think this person is thinking about the disagreement? And the other way around, of course. So I'm proposing this. What I'm proposing this and not something else, right? So is this thing of continuously questioning the way you think and the way others think and try to find this common ground and yeah, share ideas in from this, you know, this kind of pleasure of completely different minds. For me, that's maybe the, the most rewarding thing. My name is Claudia Mignone. I'm an astrophysicist from Italy, from the south of Italy originally, and I've been working as a science writer and communicator for the past 14 years. I started my journey as a research astronomer, so about researching about cosmology. I work for the Italian National Institute for Astrophysics, ENAF, since, so I've been working as an astronomer science communicator in Italy at the National Institute for Astrophysics ENAF since 2020. And before that, I worked for 10 years for the European Space Agency in the Netherlands, communicating the agency's science mission. So the adventures and results from a number of space missions, exploring our solar system and observing the universe from space. This was an art performance per se from the beginning. We had a lot of discussion also on how best to engage the public because it's it's not a, it's not a given that you just communicate something and then people come to the website and decode the message. So maybe some would, but there's a whole extra layer of, of management of this engagement of the public that had to be, that, that wasn't clear at the beginning of the project. And then it took shape throughout those meetings. So how to create a platform basically where people could discuss. We've also had many conversations with Daniela about it because it's uh, it's an art project. It's a science art project. It's a performance art project that has a public engagement component. So it's not a, a public outreach project that an institution says, oh, I want to share my research with the public. Let's do something. So it also has an element of that, but it's primarily performance. It's an art piece. So it follows different rules. And that's why there's been so many conversations with so many collaborators and and I think that is another aspect that makes it very, very unique, that it it really brings together so many experts from different fields, so from radio communication, communication engineers, space engineers, space scientists, astronomers, and then you have sociologists, anthropologists, poets, artists philosophers so really a diverse set of people who created the project and then this is reflected in the community that that has picked it up because also the community that has been discussing it on discord and the platform where the project is unfolding since the message was transmitted and received that's also a very diverse community there's people from all paths of life and as I understand also from very wide distribution around the planet so that's very beautiful and I think ultimately what this project is is a is an exploration of ourselves as as we try to understand how we would communicate with a species or how a species would communicate with us in this case it's fundamental that we understand well what what do do we need what do we want to say and in that sense we need to to better understand ourselves so i think ultimately like all research it it is an understanding of 
of ourselves as as humans, as carbon-based forms that live on a speck of rock around a star in a galaxy, but also that can make connections all around the planet and like what it really means to to be a global species that tries to make sense of itself in, in a bigger universe. My name is Bettina Fauger. I'm the director of the Artist in Residence program at the SETI Institute. So the SETI Institute was initially actually a part of NASA Ames after the Apollo program. There was this question of what it actually meant to step into the cosmos, first stop moon, what next, whom else may be out there. The SETI Institute became a, a nonprofit in the 1980s. And the focus of the Institute is the research question, are we alone in the universe? What is the prevalence and origin of life and intelligence? What is even intelligence? And then also to share those insights and that kind of research with the world. I love Daniela's project for several reasons. It is very mature. It's very complex. It, I love that it really is a dress rehearsal for post-detection. We only think about it. They are post-detection protocols, but nobody has really tested it and thought in depth of what it would mean to really receive a signal and what could happen in the general public. Would we get excited? Would we get scared? Would we even care? And having the parameters of an art project makes it a lot easier than having it a science project because it is more accessible to the general public. You, people don't feel like, like they have to be scientists to participate in this. And the way Daniela calibrated it, it really is aimed at the globe. It's not a US-centric, NASA or SETI-centric project, when I mean SETI, like SETI Institute-centric or European Space Agency-centric. It really involves everyone on every continent, whether or not people are technically advanced or coders or not, or artists or not. And that is what we need, I think. Once an alien signal does maybe come in, we need the cooperation of everybody all over the world, but also different perspectives and abilities and talents need to come into play to really think about something so momentous, this kind of, you know, par real paradigm shift. People say paradigm shift all the time, but an alien signal would be an actual paradigm shift the way that phrase was actually initially invented, like the Copernican revolution, but just on a larger grand scale. So you can't leave that to a handful of scientists and policymakers. We all need to be involved in this. And I think Daniela's project design space really models that and has so many modules and components that people can get involved in, get interested in. It's just this perfect package. It's, it's a simple idea, but it's also complex once you start to unlock it. So there were a lot of interesting conversational strands that were happening. One was, for example, are we too human-centric when we're thinking of a message? What if the aliens don't have eyes? Can they read a message? What if they don't have ears? What if they are a fungus? What if their life expectancy or their lifespan is 10,000 years and it takes them 10 years to have a thought? How long will we have to send the signal? What if they are, you know, a little microorganism is just blip, you know, they may be smart, but, you know, where on the planet are we sending it? Also these kind of, it's nearly a rabbit hole. They're fascinating conversations, but it is a rabbit hole once you start thinking like, oh, but what? how can we imagine this alien that we are sending this message to or who are we, we, who we are thinking is sending us this message? So to first devise or design this alien signal, we have to define who the alien is and imagine the unimaginable which is what artists are very good at, which is why we have an artist in residence program 
to help us imagine the unimaginable, specifically and especially for the SETI Institute. This is a real bonus. But th this was a conversation that could have gone on for five years. We at one point had to say like, okay, we need to just, we, we asked all the questions. We cannot answer any of these questions, but at least they were asked. And then, so turning it around and then saying, okay, so who's now receiving this message? It's all the people on the planet. So what are their abilities? And what is their access? Do they have technological access? Yes, this can be sent via radio, which is, you know, and, and Daniela has a very strong background in radio arts. And so the idea that maybe astronomy clubs who are into radio astronomy could receive, live receive the signal is really exciting because we want to make it as accessible as possible. But then again, is the... Is the signal going to be a text in English? Not everybody speaks English. Should it be music? Should it be a picture? You know, because you always have to decentralize yourself and de-anthropomorphize and question all the assumptions of who you are and your day-to-day -day life to compose an alien message, and then also think about if it's really going to be for a global audience, how are we going to do this? It's still interesting and needs to be coherent, but how are we going to make it for everybody? So those were the most important questions that we struggled with. And it was phenomenal to have this huge advisory board with lots of different perspectives and voices. But I'm glad that in the end, Daniela decided to just have three people devise the final message because we would still be talking in 10 years. It's the conversation itself. I think that was even part of this project. I think the project is not only the actual message. I think for Daniela to get these people together and have these conversations and take notes and recordings in itself, I think it's a phenomenal part of the project. And then of course we have the signal that is, was beamed to earth and now we're all trying to unpack the gift. And then once we kind of decoded it, I think there's gonna be a third phase where everybody sort of interprets and reimagines and comments on this signal and the message. So it's a, it's a really fascinating project because it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Like there's so many aspects and facets to it that I'm really looking forward to seeing how it evolves. My name is Roy Smits. I'm a Dutch astronomer and writer. So I've worked in the astronomy field for about 20 years, worked in the Netherlands, worked in the, the UK with the Square Kilometer Array, helped develop new projects. And I've, in, in the remaining time, I've done a lot of writing. I've written a book in Dutch about the emergence of astronomy, the influence of telescopes, all the way up to the latest developments in astronomy. The book is called Telescopes and Time Machines. I also do a lot of outreach towards children. I love teaching them astronomy. I've done a lot of teaching in, in the schools, primary schools. And recently, actually this weekend, I've released a children's book called Space Monkeys, which is a nice, exciting adventure about Robbie, a main character, who goes on a great adventure. So I do all these things just to promote science, to promote astronomy, but also to make people and children excited for science. We had, well, again, credit to Daniela for getting a whole team together to, to think about what kind of message we would want. She got scientists, artists, poets, people from all kinds of disciplines together. My concern was, I'm of a very scientific mind, is that we would not get to a, a final result in this path because in the end, what was sort of missing in, in my perspective is that in the end, the message would be just a series of ones and zeros. And that was not, I don't think many people who were contributing at that stage had that mindset. And that worked out perfectly because Daniela's intention were always getting people to think about it outside of the box. My perspective was 
but I thought about constructing a message. Okay, it'll be a series of ones and zeros. How can we make ones and zeros interesting and relevant? And the Yale's approach is just out of the box. Let's try to think of some interesting approach to this. And she got people together. And the process in which this happened, that already is part of the art project. Of course, this hasn't been published yet, but I'm sure Daniela will have some publication about that process. That is a wonderful piece of output from this art project itself. But for me, it was always much more inside the box restricted. We were going to have a series of ones and zeros. The other thing is that it needed to be universal. And there was a lot of debate about this. Would the, would the message be aimed towards humans? Would it be in our language? You know, you, we've had so many ideas, but it could simply be as simple as, as a message, like hello world, you know, a little wave towards us, as simple as that. But it would be in a human language. I personally liked to have a universal because I think if we ever going to pick up a signal from extraterrestrials, we cannot expect it to be anything in there that is from our language or our culture or even our ways of, of encoding signals. It'll be universal. Any civilization that it has intelligence should be able to understand the content of that message without any bias towards your culture or language. So to me, that was an important aspect. And the other thing that I really liked, which we have in the, in the message, which is very clear, is that it has to be some sort of a puzzle. It gives people a sense of what it would actually be like of receiving a signal from an extraterrestrial civilization. What will happen without the bias of science fiction novels and the Hollywood drama that usually comes with these kind of events? We humans, we are storytelling creatures. We use our imagination for storytelling. We convey knowledge via storytelling. But storytelling also needs conflict. If you have a movie about aliens, like the movie Contact, where, of course, we get a signal from space, very similar to this. And in the movie, there's a lot of conflict. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of political conflict. There's a whole religion aspect to it. In the end, somebody blows up the whole device that they've created out of the signal. It's all about conflict and, and, and the good and the bad of, of humans. But in real life, it'll be much more timid than that. It'll be exactly what we see now, People discussing, debating, trying to get to a solution. And I think this, what we're seeing here is for the first time, gives us a realistic glimpse of what it would really be like to receive a signal from some extraterrestrial civilization. My name is Jamie Johnson. I am an associate professor of philosophy at Wichita State University. My main sort of research connects with the ethics of space exploration. I have approached space from sort of many different areas in philosophy, ranging from philosophy of science to, to science policy to social philosophy and philosophy of disability. And in addition to being a, a professional philosopher, I am also a musical artist and engage in sort of a lot of different kinds of creative projects. And I have a sort of album coming out very shortly. I think independent of the kind of, you know, artistic purpose and the more artistic engagement that a lot of people have had with it, I'd be hard pressed to find a better kind of, you know, public education project for how radio astronomy works, right? Because I think, you know, th there's this sort of secondary effect that you kind of just have to, learn a lot about the networks of radio astronomy observatory sites and like just you know hearing people kind of talk through how they're selecting algorithms and things like this i mean what we're learning here is there are a lot of people that would try to help out in this situation but also that we don't have a manual for it right so i think it's you know when you highlight just how big something is and how many people it takes to do something and how many different skill sets independently of whether you've got i don't know like ethnic representation or that kind of diversity what you're doing is highlighting the diversity of skill sets that are just you know needed even for a project like this so if this is what we need for a sign in space imagine the complexity that would be up if you know we get the non-human signal right 
So I, I think it kind of highlights how much work there is to do. And it, it's, it's pleasing to, to know there can be constructive comings together. And I think that's very helpful to, to get people interested in problem solving is to show them these really kind of, you know, enterprise crew communities working on problems. We don't necessarily need more STEM degrees. You know, we, we need, you know, support for the arts and for, for caring about people and things like this. And we need, you know, more perspective from, from non-STEM sources on these issues because we've seen what the STEM crowd has produced over the years. And what we keep learning is we need more than that. My name is Giacomo Michelli. I'm a computer scientist and a, an entrepreneur. And I also dub as a, a creative person in the half time. I have been involved into this magnificent project of Ascendant Space since October 2022. And it's been a fascinating journey. Very excited to have been part of it. I go through this Discord channel and find a lot of concepts, concepts that I was not aware of. You know, they could be in the form of a, a link to a Wikipedia page. You know, it might be in the form of an algorithm that somebody is sharing. It might be in the form of a very poetic interpretation that somebody takes on the message. And you know, there is no qualitative judgment done on on the content. There is just an absorption of, of what is being posted. And I, I just find it flabbergasting to see what people come up with. It's really, truly exciting. And it also questions the idea that there is a correct reading of the message. Because when we set out to, to compose this message, I think we also had in mind the idea of having the message have as many readings as possible. So this is something that we really thought would have been valuable for the success of, of this project. And, and I think that a quick tour over the Discord channel makes it abundantly clear that people have all sorts of interpretation from you know the musical to the naturalistic to the sci-fi. There's really many, many lenses through, through which to read the message. So that for me is a goal of mine, just the, the content that is created around it and, and the knowledge that is bubbling up to the surface. I find it fascinating how the same stars could be seen by different civilizations in different ways, representing different concepts. And, and this is what happens also in a certain space. People are finding numerous readings and they all make sense to the person that comes up with that reading. So I guess so the technical term for that is it's apophenia. Apophenia is the tendency to perceive a connection or meaningful pattern between unrelated or random things. Now, they might be unrelated, they might be related, but the point is that it is strictly embedded into the fabric of our brains to try to find meaning into the things that we see. It's, it's how we became such good problem-solving entities. And I, I think it's, it's something beautiful. So it all goes back to watching the stars to me. And, and I think that fascination opened the door to what I consider the most important characteristic in, in me, which is curiosity, simple curiosity. Just keep on asking why or where or who or when and just Go on with that. I think if you are stuck into a cycle of curiosity, satisfaction, the curiosity, spawning a new question, you have several lifetimes to fill in. There's just too much to know out there. And the sense of fascination somehow remains fresh. It, it sort of it renews with the age. And, and sometimes you, you can be fascinated multiple times by understanding something you already knew at a deeper level. It's the reason why people read the same book multiple times or watch the same movie multiple times. 
you do find meaning from the same thing, even at different points in time. My name is Mukesh Bhatt, B-H-A-T-T. I always spell it since people leave the H out. I am trained as a physicist, but I also have qualifications in languages and law. And currently, as a very, very mature student, I'm following doing research in the space law of space colonization. I think one of the main aspects of the project is that it is available through the internet. And here I'm going to also go into some of what I do in terms of professional research. The Outer Space Treaty, in terms of space exploration, says that data from space is available to all on an equal basis for free. Of course, what you do with it afterwards, you package it and you sell it on, but that's a different matter. That's good Dutch capitalism, by the way. 17th century. Ouch. <laughs> I think it contributes to equality in three ways. One is it brings people together trying to decipher something that is not part of the normal geopolitics of everyday life. So it's not English, it's not Tamil, it's not Spanish, it's not Arabic, although it could be any of those but it could be all of those. It might even be Esperanto or Klingon. But because we don't know what it is, it pulls people together because they all have an equal chance of solving it. At the same time, what it does is it pulls people in the direction of space. But what it does, it asks people, if there is something or someone out there sending us a message, what else is out there? What does it tell us about what is possible here on Earth and in space? And given that we spend a lot of money on space exploration, is what we do in space actually useful here on Earth? It turns out, yes, it is. Because almost everything that you do in order to solve this message will give people the skills to be employed or to start businesses, to talk to other people in their daily lives. And that I think is one of the greatest examples I can think of in terms of equality in space exploration, pulling people together in, in, a, in a way that does not really care about where you come from yeah. or what language you speak. My name is Gregory Betts, and I am an experimental poet and a professor of avant-garde in Canadian literature at Brock University in St. Catharines, Canada. Depending on how you count them, I am the author of about 22 books that explore some of the limits of experimental writing in Canada. So I write creative books, and I produce scholarly books that track the efforts of especially avant-garde writers in this context in Canada documenting how they've expanded the options and the opportunities for future generations. Imagine an artist triggering hundreds of space and data scientists to drop everything and work around the clock to crack the code. But beyond that technical element, the art also includes the current and eventual responses by the wider public. From the cute alien drawings that have come in to the vast, almost dissertations about the implications of the project that we've already received. The art really emerges when we consider how humans, the entire human community that engages with this project, which is thousands upon thousands of people so far, how they are affected by the simulation of alien contact. So the boundaries of its cultural endeavor haven't been set yet. It's still happening in real time as we talk. And if you've heard uh, during the course of this message, I've already received about three different beeps from the Discord channel where new interpretations are pouring in. 
it might not seem like there's an obvious connection between this uh, very technologically infused science project and poetry. But if you go far back enough, poetry was once responsible for collecting and holding the knowledge of the world. The best thinkers in the world would develop their thinking and encode them into a poem. So you read something like the Iliad and beyond all the action and the events and the, the, the good fun of it, you get a complete litany of the gods, their foundational myths and their interrelations. You also get political and military history and extensive details about medicine available at the time. You could write a whole book on the technology in the poem. And I'm sure many people have actually done that. The idea of a group of soldiers entering into a sealed vessel, passing through hostile space and vanquishing the enemy also resonates. So we can also think of that poem, the Iliad, as a vessel for leading thought of that time. And the poem was sent out into the world, vanquishing ignorance or, or at least different thought. Anyone who encountered such a poem would be expanded, altered by their engagement with all the new thoughts that it contained. I think from that perspective, you can start to see some of the parallels with this project. It is a message sent as if from another civilization, sending a transformative message to our planet. I just saw the same story as the Iliad told in, in space with my kids the other day in the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie. L luckily, a sign in space does not imagine a militant or colonial predicament. And all the interpretations of the message so far seem to suggest that these aliens want a relationship with us rather than seeking to conquer us. But in terms of the parallels to poetry of old, this is project is a work of art that captures and embodies so much of the very cutting edge of human thinking now. And of course, I'm talking about the space technology that permitted the project. I mean, it's only been 65 years since the first satellite was sent into space. Sputnik 1 in 1957 by the USSR, which orbited the Earth. We've gone so much farther in the years since. The European Space Agency's satellite, the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, orbits around another planet 300 million kilometers away. All of this is inconceivable a century ago. It's true, radio astronomy is less than 100 years old, and SETI itself is only 60 years old. So Daniela's project helps to synthesize all these aspects of science. All of those threads combine in an elegant tapestry in this project that reminds me of the role of poetry of old. It collects and embodies, and perhaps, hopefully, expands the limits of current human knowledge. My name is Jörg Matthias Determann. I'm a historian who's based at Virginia Commonwealth University in Qatar, in the Middle East. And I've been a team member of Assign in Space since 2021. I have been researching the history of science, especially the history of astronomy and space science and astrobiology in the Middle East and in the Islamic world. What I love about astronomy and any subject that has to do with the stars, right, whether it's astrobiology, whether it's space research more broadly, is this universal nature of it. So in principle, the sky is accessible to almost anyone. And since the dawn of humanity, people must have looked up to the sky and wondered what's there, right? And indeed, wherever you are in the world, you can see similar kinds of celestial bodies. Wherever you are at times of the year, you will be able to see the sun, you will be able to see the moon. Whether you are in Doha, Qatar, or whether you are in the Netherlands, or whether you're in Italy or America, but you will probably see Venus or Mars or Jupiter at, at certain times of the year. So these planets, these bodies in the sky, they don't belong to 
one particular culture or one particular country, but they belong to all of humanity. And you can probably find names for planets or bright stars in, in the vocabulary of most languages of the world. People around the world have also wondered about whether communication is possible with the heavens. People around the world have known for a long time that at least certain heavenly bodies affect their lives, right? Most notably the sun, to a lesser extent, the moon, where these bodies are in the, in the sky directly affects things on earth. And people have wondered as well beyond the moon, beyond, beyond, beyond the sun, whether other objects, other planets, other stars may have affected things here on earth. Right, And hence, right, we have in many languages the names of the planet associated with gods. Jupiter, of course, not only being the biggest planet, but also the most important god in the Greco-Roman pantheon. So people have been wondering about their relationship with the stars for a long time. And people have been thinking about the possibilities of receiving messages from the heaven. Right, receiving the word, uh, the word of God, and the, the Middle East, where I'm located, has given rise to a number of civilizations where and religions where messages from heaven are central. Right, where you have the idea of prophecy, where a human being is able to receive a message from the heavens, a message from the divine. The Nowadays, most important religion in the Middle East being Islam, uh, but there the idea of prophecy is central. The most important human being in Islamic history might be the Prophet Muhammad, so somebody who received a message from the heavens. So this idea that humans, uh, people on earth are able to communicate are able to receive information from the heavens above them is something that is shared by many religions, many cultures, including those of the Middle East. Hello, my name is Frank White. I'm the author of The Overview Effect, Space Exploration and Human Evolution and two other books on the overview effect, and perhaps most re relevant to our discussion today. I'm also the author of The SETI Factor, which is a book about the potential impact of extraterrestrial contact. And so I've been an advisor to the project, and mostly about what the message should look like, and also thinking about what impact it would have. From my point of view, I see a sign in space as something that I wrote about in my book. I did not write about this project because it didn't exist. However, what I wrote about was getting ready for SETI, as I put it. It seemed to me in examining the potential impact on society of contact with other intelligences, the more prepared we were, the better. And that book was actually written a long time ago, maybe 30 years ago, and it was assuming that perhaps the day would come when we received a signal, a message from another star system or elsewhere that everybody would agree this is, this is what we call ETI, extraterrestrial intelligence. And it seemed fairly obvious the more you delved into that that a society unprepared for it, not thinking about it, totally unaware of it, would really be shocked. And so I always felt that the longer we had to prepare, the better. I see this particular project as being preparation in that it's about a simulation of receiving a message. When you start to delve into this topic, like when you write a book about it, you start to realize there's this very narrow window for 
communication to happen that would be meaningful. For the moment, I will put aside the whole question of whether extraterrestrials are here now. That's the whole UAP controversy. But we're really looking at classical SETI, which is more communication-based, and what might happen. Because there, we do know that we have never we have never actually had a connection that could be replicated and everybody could agree on it so you can really have some precision about it having said that you begin to realize that for anything meaningful to happen in terms of societal impact the other civilization has to be very close to us in space and time. Now, what I mean by that is the other civilization, if it's 50 years ahead of us in evolutionary terms, let's say, which is a tiny amount of time, that's not very far ahead of us. Think about if we were communicating with ourselves 50 years ago, whatever year that would be, I don't know, I can't do the math, but let's just say it was 20th century. We have a lot that would astonish those folks. Smartphones would be one. Artificial intelligence might be another some of our spacecraft, but the two cultures would be recognizable to each other. However, if the other civilization is, let's say, 500 years ahead, communication is going to get harder and harder. A thousand years, even harder. Again, how could we communicate with humans a thousand, a thousand years behind us? in technology and knowledge. So for any meaningful dialogue to take place, the two civilizations can't be too far apart. Obviously, if, if the other civilization is way behind us, they're not sending signals out. So they have to be at some kind of parity. And then distance in space is important. Important. For example, communicating with Alpha Centauri or Proxima Centauri four light, year, four light years away, that does make sense. If we got a signal from that star system, that means it was sent in 2019 for us. And then when we respond, they would receive the message in 2027, but we wouldn't hear back till 2031. <laughs> on and on. I can keep going on, but the problem is, my point is, if a signal comes from a thousand light years away, communication is going to be difficult because with the speed of light, things are going to go, thing, the two cultures are going to continue to evolve while the signals are being sent. You have to ask yourself, after a thousand years, would, would the message make any sense to the, the future civilization? And so I believe this kind of contact could have enormous impact. And it could have enormous impact even if we were to get a signal from far, far away, you know, just because we would know, even if we couldn't have a dialogue, we'd know they're out there. We would know that the kind of evolution that we see here would happen elsewhere. It would tell us a lot about universal evolution. And I think it would make a big difference 
to humanity to know that we're not alone. Even if we can't have much of a conversation, that one reality, I think, could have a big impact on society. And I think it would be very challenging for us to absorb it. There is a film called, I think, The Arrival. There are there are efforts to present a positive view. And in my circles, I talk a lot about creating a multi-planet civilization or a planetary civilization that stretches out into the solar ecosystem. And when people look for shorthand about, well, what, what would it look like? Over and over again, they say Star Trek. It would look like Star Trek. And Star Trek is a generally positive view of humanity moving off the planet. It, it's about exploration rather than exploitation. Humans are cooperating with extraterrestrials. They're not fighting them. And yes, I believe so. I don't see a harm in post-apocalyptic literature. It helps us think about that. It could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. A lot of it depends on the person. So back in 1983, there was a, a film, a TV film, and I believe it was called The Day After Tomorrow. It was a very realistic, it was a very realistic treatment of nuclear war actually happening. It wasn't very science fiction-y. I had a friend who essentially fell apart watching it. It really had a terrible impact on her. And therefore, I do think we have to be super careful with what we're putting out there in the sense that I watch a lot of post-apocalyptic material, but it doesn't depress me. <laughs> it's just interesting, and, and I find it fascinating to think about. Somebody else might have a different take on it. So it really depends on the individual and on society, whether we see these things as warning signs or as prophetic, as you point out. So I do think artists, this goes back to art and science, I think artists and scientists both have tremendous responsibility for what we're putting out into the world. Hi, my name is Chelsea Haramia. I'm a philosopher, and I have two positions at the moment. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy at Spring Hill College. It's in the United States. And I also am a senior research fellow with the University of Bonn, working at the Center for Science and Thought on a project called Desirable Digitalization. And this is a grant project funded by the Mercator Foundation, and it is a joint collaboration between the universities of Cambridge and Bonn to work on the ethics of AI and finding ways to make AI more just and sustainable. One of the interesting things about space exploration, about the search for extraterrestrial technology, is that there are so many unknowns. Yes. So we're looking into like a very opaque kind of future. And so it's hard to see past that curtain into you know the reality of what post-detection looks like and so one thing that philosophers sometimes talk about and i and i referenced this in the publication there's a philosopher laurie paul who wrote a book called transformative experiences and in this book she talks about how we can undergo transformations that are you know so significant that it is difficult, if not impossible, for us to anticipate who we will become, right? And so I believe that it's possible that at least some versions of a successful detection 
could radically alter, you know, humanity. It could transform us by transforming our understanding of who we are. And so there are a couple of ways this happens, right? One, by just giving us completely new experiences. So if we have experience with uh, an extraterrestrial message, for example, a piece of communication meant, meant for us, for us humans, from, from extraterrestrial others, that, that would be an experience we've never had before. It would be, you know, what, what is that like? We don't know what it's truly like. We can imagine, we can simulate, but what it's truly like, we don't know. And we, of course, don't know the details. And so it gives us this kind of new knowledge. And we call this phenomenal knowledge in philosophy, the, the knowledge of, of what it's like to be a subjective experiencer, experiencing something you've never experienced before. And so that has the power to change you depending on the circumstances. But there's another way that it could change us and it could change how we experience being who we are. And if we're thinking about you know, the collective of humanity, if there is such a thing, then it could affect how we human beings understand being members of humanity right because what it means to be human right now is to be you know a species on this rock in this solar system standing in relation to a bunch of unknowns out there but if we get a confirmed detection we will all of a sudden become you know a species on this rock in the solar system who stand in relation to to a specific extraterrestrial, you know, other. And so we will, we will know we're not alone. And we will stand in a new relation to an entity or entities out in the cosmos that we didn't have at least the knowledge of standing in that relation to before. And so that could potentially change, you know, what it means to be human. Because what it means to be human will be, you know, humans who are not alone and, and who are not the only ones in, in this vast cosmos and we will we will have that that knowledge that we're not alone that that could change us and so maybe we don't know how but we can kind of seek it out insofar as we wish to discover who will become and I think that's nice. And with these beautiful insights shared by Chelsea, we are concluding this podcast series. I extend my heartfelt gratitude to all of you for tuning in. And I'd like also to express my profound appreciation to Daniela for her invitation and to all my remarkable guests for their generosity, sharing their insights. For further details about this project, visit scientificimagination.org or assignin.space.